Okay. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here, and um, I hope you'll enjoy what we have to say tonight. Um, I call this presentation Two Destinies because it's about the destiny of the Yodogo hijackers, and it's also about Koji Takazawa's destiny and how he came to be connected to this and to write the book. At the end, I'll put a little bit about my destiny because how did I get mixed up with both of these folks? Okay. Uh, The context of this is... um, the 1960s, what I call long decade, um, of Japan in the 1960s. It started in the late 1950s and went on until the early 1970s. And it was a period almost unimaginable now, but some of you are old enough to remember what it was like then. It was a very, um, very complex and turbulent time. And uh, there were really two... (coughs) Two protest waves in it. Whoops, sorry. Um, the 1960 Ampo protests that were protesting against the uh, Japan-U.S. Joint Security Treaty, and that was a single-issue protest, but it was a huge social upheaval. And after it, and it was also the birth of the New Left because the New Left started in. 1957 and 58, just when things were ramping up for 1960 AMPO. And the student movement was led by the new left groups during that time. After the AMPO protest, things quieted down for a few years. And then, and the students were divided a lot after that. But then they realized that in 1970, AMPO was going to have to be renewed. So they began in the mid-1960s gearing up and remobilizing and organizing, and that resulted in a very complex period of protest in the late 1960s that involved not only the security treaty itself, for which the issue was the reversion of Okinawa, but also because at that time the the Vietnam War was in its peak, the the fact that there were all these American bases being used as a rear staging area for what was going on in Vietnam meant that Japan was being dragged into the war, whether they liked it or not, on the American side. And so that was another major issue. There were also, there was a period of high growth and um, economics first, so that there were lots of environmental issues coming up and there were um, issues in communities that didn't want the kind of growth that was being promoted. So it was a complex period and it wasn't just citizens, it was citizens and it was the left and it was also thoroughly mobilized students that were all engaged in various kinds of, of protest. And another thread of it was campus protest. Uh, it, that coincided with a period when uh, the number of people interested and eligible to go on to college suddenly increased. The government-funded institutions didn't really expand very much, and so they left it to the private sector, and private universities just expanded all over the place to absorb this huge student population, and that meant that they were overcrowded, and they were not really having enough room for the people that they had admitted, and so there were also 
financial irregularities of the kinds that still plague universities in Japan. But at any rate, um, all of this was happening in the 60s. And those of us who study social movements now talk about a protest cycle that is a period when the protests increase and then they hit a peak and then the cycle seems to go down. And what we've found out is that there's a dynamic inside the the cycle. As it is expanding, it usually tends to get more violent, and the protesters, particularly new left students who had their own particular tactics, um, would be in confrontations with the police, with the riot police in particular, and those confrontations would often escalate within a protest. So they would go with a particular plan and then things would get more complicated so that that escalation of conflict between the students and the police then was reaching a peak. And at the end of 1968, the government realized that things were getting out of hand and they did some surveys and discovered that people were now ready for the police to crack down. So there was a huge crackdown at the end of 1968, early 1969, and then it never uncracked. <laughs> it, stayed, it stayed very heavy pressure on the movement. And the result was that a lot of people who had been involved in the early years of the protests and just wanted to go out on the street and speak their piece were then as things got more violent, they withdrew. They did not want to be involved in that violence. And so major groups split, and the bulk would be people who didn't want to go any farther, but there would always be a smaller group that wanted to keep fighting, and if we just push a little farther, we can topple these people and so forth. So it split things up, and it was out of that kind of a peak of the protest cycle split that the Red Army faction was created. It was a faction of a major um, protest organization, and um, things became violent. Uh, these pictures, some of them, they're classic pictures. Some of you may know them well. Uh, this one is from 1967. Uh, it's the first Haneda protest. It's known as Jupachi, which is October 8th. And this was the first event at which students came armed with poles, which used to be used for fighting with each other, and then they were used to fight against the police. And it was also the first time that they wore crash helmets um, to the protest. Um, this was at Haneda. The police had blocked off the bridges to Haneda to keep the students from getting to the airport. And uh, so, as you can see, the students were climbing on top of the police vehicles. And um, it, this picture doesn't show it, but they were also taunting the police by waving their flags from the top of the police vehicles. Um, and there was a lot of stone throwing, and it was just a, it was a pretty violent scene. There was one death in that protest, which became a martyr for um, the, the group that was involved. Um, and the students believed that the police had done it. It turned out that the students had control of a police vehicle at that point, and he got run over. But at any rate, that was a very, that was sort of marked the beginning of the really violent period. And that then continued. And the next pictures that I have here are from 19, January 1969. This is the ending of the Tokyo University conflict. Todai had been on strike since July of 
the of 1968, and in January, uh, a, a law had been passed that if a, if the university could not control their student conflict within six months, the MoMA show would take over. So. Todai was getting close to that point, and people had been trying valiantly to fix it, and they could not reach an agreement because certain groups, the majority of the groups had already agreed, but the holdouts were just not going to back down. At any rate, um, and in the middle of January, the university people finally called in the riot police over the weekend with pr- all kinds of prior arrangements. And they spent two days ending the Todai strike. Um, this is the, you know, the building. It's Yasuda Auditorium, and it's the iconic image of Tokyo University. It was the administration building. As you can see, it was full of students who had been there for six months. And this was the first day when the students were still there. And then overnight, um, these are searchlights and uh, streams of water cannons um, attacking the building, and they cleared it on the next day. Okay, So that was the major fall of Todai. At the time, though, there were at least eight other universities on strike. So if you looked at the newspaper, it was like all of these universities are blowing up at the same time, and the image that the public had was things were completely out of control, and um, that's why they were really cracking down at that time. Okay, at the same time that the Todai conflict was happening, students from all over the country had gathered in Tokyo. They couldn't necessarily be on the campus, but they were, um, this was in the Kanda bookstore area, and they had built French-style barricades. Uh, This is an upturned automobile, and they're behind that, and they're throwing stones at the police line, which is over there. Okay, so that's the atmosphere that was happening then, and uh, understandably, the whole society was gripped with fear about it. Okay, so that's the environment in which um, Sekigun began to make its voice heard. It was at that point a faction within the Kyosan Shugisha Dome. This is the main group that they were part of, um, Bunt. And they were at first just a faction inside. They had a lot of power within the within uh, the Kyosan Shugisha Dome. So there were a lot of schools that were already on the Red Army side. And the Red Army's philosopher Shiomi Takaya, who died very recently, um, was propounding that. He had a whole elaborate, incomprehensible theory, but the point of it was that um, if we push harder, there we can be part of a, a, a revolution that is happening all over the world. Third world countries are revolting, and we're going to be part of it. And to do that, we have to keep pushing farther, and we have to we have to have better weapons. So his idea was we have to go underground, have guerrilla army, and make all of this happen. Okay, so it was a, f- a faction of Kyosan Shugisha Dome, and then in the summer, the main organization threw them out and said, no, you can't, we can't tolerate this anymore. So it became independent, but it had a base. It had a base in a lot of, in a lot of schools, and so it had a membership already. 
And as it, they went into the fall, they began operating independently of this parent. And this was their public debut as an independent organization. The event was at Hibia Auditorium, and it was an, a national convention of Zen Kyoto, of all the student um, organizations protesting. Um, but this was outside, and they were having a, an uchigeba. They were fighting with their predecessors uh, about it. Okay. So that was the atmosphere. The leaders of the Red Army faction. There really are two. People mostly know Shiomi Takaya, who was the theorist, but equally important was Tamiya Takamaro, who was the guy who found crazy ways to put these ideas into action. Okay? So one of them was the theorist and the other one was the action guy. Okay. Now, so during the fall, after it had its debut as an independent organization, it had been part of this public organization, so it was way too public, and it was saying way too much for a group that wanted to go underground. So it was talking all the time, and it was announcing what it wanted to do, and in the fall it would play, declared that it was having a kind of preliminary insurrection, uh, which involved attacking uh, police boxes to try to get guns. Failed. Um, and then they had also been making, in, in these schools that had been closed, students had access to chemistry labs and other facilities, and so they had been um, making improvised explosives, what we now call IEDs. And so they had made a, a, a kind of grenade out of peace, can, peace cigarette cans full of pachinko balls and with some kind of a fuse, and they could be thrown. Um, and they also had a pipe bomb. So as they were building these, these devices, uh, they were afraid of blowing themselves up trying to use them. So they planned a guerrilla training camp, and they sent a bunch of people to Daibosatsu, which is fairly close to Tokyo, and they were going to have a weekend of training. Most people who went had no idea what they were doing, just, oh, we're going to go, and it was called go to a picnic. That was the code word for it. So they went to their picnic, and then while they were sleeping overnight, the police swooped in and arrested everybody. So they arrested 53 people, and then the consequences came. After the arrests... They had, they had arrested 53 people and discovered from the materials that were there that the group had actually been planning to kidnap isn't quite the word. There was going the, the, the prime minister was supposed to take a trip overseas, which at that time was a, um, was a common focus of protests. Keep this person from going to meet overseas and do the bad policy things that we don't want him to do. So the plot to kidnap the prime minister was revealed by these documents. So all of a sudden, this little group, Sekigunha, was taken more seriously than it had been because they were not just students playing around. They were talking about kidnapping and holding the prime minister. So um, of course, they'd arrested all the people, so it didn't happen. 
But the surveillance tightened terribly on all of the people who had not yet been arrested, and there were hundreds and hundreds of them, okay? So incredible surveillance in the fall and winter of 1969. Um, People have told me about going to work with six plainclothes police surrounding them, two in front, two on the sides, and two in back, marching them to work. So obviously it was an environment in which they couldn't do anything. Um, There were all kinds of pretexts for uh, arrests, uh, for any kind of minor thing, and it just was a very difficult time. But, so there was, they couldn't function anymore. So Shiomi, with his brilliant theoretical mind, came up with a new idea. What we need to do, he said, is we need to go overseas and find bases in friendly countries where we can get guerrilla training and learn how to do a revolution and then come back. Okay? So this overseas base idea became the foundation for what the next phase of the Red Army's actions would be. Okay, so here we are. A few months later, um, nine guys from the Red Army faction, college students, one of them a high school student, 16 years old, um, hijacked a plane that was going from Tokyo to Fukuoka. It, uh, Fukuoka. it was the first domestic hijacking in Japan. Shiomi was supposed to go. He was involved in the planning, um, but he got arrested a week before, and the police had all of his notebooks. And in his notebooks, they kept seeing something called HJ. They had no idea what it was, but that was the code for hijacking. Okay? So at any rate, the hijacking went off, and uh, it's, the reason it's called Yodo Go, the, at that time, Japan Airlines planes had names. So instead of being flight number 927, it was plane Yodo Go. And so that was the name of the plane. So the group on it of Red Army kids became known as the Yodo Go group in the press, and the name has stuck. So they are still known in the public as the Yodo Go group. Okay, so... This was the plane, and that's the hijacking. They left Fukuoka, and through um, coordination between the United States, Japan, and South Korea, um, the plane got diverted. They thought they were going to Pyongyang, but instead the plane was diverted to Seoul. And they had dressed up Seoul Airport to look like Pyongyang. They didn't know what the Pyongyang airport looks like, but they pretended, okay? And they had a bunch of pretty young women who dressed up in um, Korean traditional dress and had flowers and came out to the plane. So it looked like they were being greeted in Pyongyang. So they, the plane landed and they opened the, the hatch and Tamiya looked out, and he saw a Northwest Airlines plane on the corner of it. And so he said, this is not Pyongyang. This is Seoul. So they got back in the plane, and there then followed a three-day siege where they wouldn't they were negotiating, they wouldn't leave, and this became international news. So it was all over the newspapers, and North Korea was also watching, okay? And so they knew that these guys, they had no prior contact with them, but they could see that there was a whole big to-do being created by these 
kids who wanted to go to North Korea. So after a couple days of waiting it out, um, uh, Kim, Kim Il-sung sent word through the Korean Red Cross, the North Korean Red Cross, that North Korea would take them and they, would, they promised that they would return the plane and the crew. Before they left, the parliamentary vice minister for, the, for transportation um, agreed to be a substitute hostage. So all of the remaining hostages were removed from the plane, and the skeleton crew plus this um, diet member who joked with the students about how his career was going to be made now because he was <laughs> taking this role in the, the event. So they then flew on to Pyongyang, and they had no idea what was going to happen. They had made no prior contact, and they just hoped that all – they actually originally wanted to go farther. They hoped that the North Koreans would let them go on to Korea – to, excuse me, to Cuba, because this plane would not go as far as Cuba. So they – they had chosen North Korea because it was the only place they could fly to where they thought they might have a a chance. Anyway, so they get there, and – they're welcomed. Here they are landing, um, and there's arrival. There's the rest of them are back behind, but that's the crew. Okay, and then this is when the North Koreans told them, "Okay, you got to get rid of all your weapons." Well, the weapons were an embarrassment. They had a, a toy gun, and they had to say, "Toy, toy, <laughs> it's not real." Um, and that was what they were working with. Okay, so then. They were brought to a banquet. They were wined and dined for about three days, and the the crew of the plane and the the vice minister um, went back on the flight and to a, a big celebration because they had come home safely. Meanwhile, the crew had the the nine hijackers had no idea what was going to happen to them. They asked for a few things. They wanted military training, and they wanted to know about North Korea, and they wanted more philosophical training also, and they wanted um, to be able to go back in the fall and start their revolution. And the the North Koreans said, uh, we'll take these things under advisement, uh, but you can stay for now, and you need some re-education. So... After this event, the curtain closed, and nobody knew what was happening to them. And for two years, they were undergoing very intensive uh, indoctrination, and they ended up um, giving up their Red Army ideas and becoming followers of what was then emerging as the official North Korean uh, ideology, Juche. Okay? There was some confusion because Japanese students at that time um, were very taken with the word shutaisei, which meant, in their concern, uh, something like individual agency, that you should take responsibility for yourself and you should be an independent person. And that was a big deal in Japan at that time. Well, those characters are the same as the characters for Juche. Okay. But in the North Korean version, the idea is that it is the independence of the country, the self-reliance of North Korea as a country that is Juche. So there was a confusion because it took them a while to figure out that, oh, it doesn't mean what we think it means. But pretty soon they were um, convinced by the continuing repetition of the same lessons by their teachers, and they became followers of Juche. 
they still were not trustable, but things were going in the right direction as far as the North Koreans were concerned. So in 1972, there was a press conference in Pyongyang at which the hijackers appeared and renounced their Red Army ideas and expressed their commitment to the Juche philosophy. And then the curtain closed again, and nobody heard anything from them for another 20 years or so. Okay, they were, they were there. People assumed that they were stuck in North Korea, and nobody knew quite what was happening. And they were, the image was that these were lonely, single men who had converted to Juche ideology, could not leave North Korea, had nothing to do, but were trapped in North Korea. Okay? So that's what everybody thought. And then in the late 1980s, things began to change. This is a 1980s wanted poster. There are only seven people in this one because uh, one person, um, as you'll see in the next slide, had uh, turned up in Japan, and another one, they had already elaborately staged um, a funeral for someone who had actually died some years before, so people knew that there were two, two missing. And actually, this person um, was not with the group anymore, but he was still alive. Um, okay, so that's... This is, they were still at the front of everybody's mind in Japan. They were on the national, international wanted list. Um, at that time in Japan, one of these posters, plus one for the, the group in the Middle East, was in outside every police box. And if you came through Japanese immigration, it was on every immigration officer's cubicle. So you couldn't miss these two groups of people who had left Japan um, as members of Sekigunha or something like that. Okay, so in the late, in late 1980s, things changed. Um, security increased for the Seoul Olympics because a lot of people, a lot of the groups were training in Japan, but also there was a lot of fear that North Korea would do something to disrupt the Seoul Olympics. And, and you probably know that in previous Olympics, there had been various kinds of, of, of um, protests. Okay, so during this time, European security agencies kept reporting to the Japanese that they had found Japanese women who were linked to North Korea. These were women who had been picked up when they were doing surveillance on North Koreans and North Korean embassies, and they found these women going in and out of those embassies. Okay, So they had the pictures, and they sent them back to Japan. They said, these are Japanese women, and the Japanese were able to find, oh, yeah, they've got Japanese passports. So they, took, they recalled their passports, but they, had, they didn't, made no connection to the Yodogo group. Okay. In some cases, pictures of the Japanese men who were part of the Yodogo group also were given to the Japanese authorities, but those couldn't be the Yodogo group because they're safely in North Korea. They can't be in Europe because they're in North Korea. Okay. So a lot of information was coming in but was missed because they didn't see the real situation. Okay. Then in 1988, the youngest of the hijackers, Shibata Yasuhiro, who had been a 15-year-old when he ran away from home and joined the Red Army, um, and 16 when he went on the hijacking. Uh, he came back into Japan. He had been apparently coming in and out for a few years, and he had um, the 
he had a koseki that belonged to a uh, Korean resident of Japan who had returned to North Korea about a decade before. And so he had that person's seal. That person had a Japanese koseki, and he was able with that to get a passport. So he had been going in and out of Japan. When they caught him, within a couple of days, he said yes, who he was. And there, then he was put on trial. He was tried for the hijacking, but there was no crime of hijacking in Japan at that time. So they had all kinds of charges, stealing an airplane, uh, kidnapping passengers, whatever they could think of to make the charges for them. So he was on trial. And at that point, relations with the group in North Korea began to open up. And there were people in Japan who were helping with the trial and who needed to contact the people um, in North Korea. His lawyer, Otsusan, went up there with a person who's in our audience, <laughs> Yamanaka Yoshio, who is the head of the QN Renwick Center and who worked closely with them all through the, the 90s. And so um, Shibata was on trial in the, his trial was basically the early 90, 91, 92. And so there started to be communication between supporters of the group in Japan and North Korea, and it was possible for those people to go visit North Korea. Okay, this is where Takazawa's destiny comes into the story. Takazawa himself, as a student, had been on the edges of the Red Army faction. He, his role had been to help out with the publications, and he knew how to get things published, and he, so he was responsible for a lot of production of the materials that the, that the Red Army faction produced. Um, as an adult, uh, he became an editor, an independent, first an editor working for a publisher, and then an independent journalist, and he wrote and edited a lot of books about left-wing materials, new left materials, and most of the standard texts that we have about the new left were edited or compiled in some way by Takazawa Koji. So he became an expert on the new left. Um, his connection was that he was from Osaka, and he had known Tamiya Takamaru as a student. And they, had, they spoke Osaka Ben together, and they were good buddies. Um, and he also knew at least one of the other people in the Yodogo group from his time as a student. And through his later work um, with support groups for the Red Army when it became the, um, the United Red Army and was involved in the um, Asama Sanso incident in 1972, he also he knew other people and he was involved in that kind of support. He also knew Shibata's lawyer. Um, and he knew, of course, he knew Yamanaka-san. Um, so I heard from Yamanaka-san the other day that, that, um, that Tamiya actually asked to see um, Takazawa, was interested in him. At any rate... Takazawa was able to start going to Pyongyang, and he reestablished his relationship with Tamiya, and he began publishing their writings in Japan. So he first said, you have materials that you've been writing. They will have an audience in Japan, so give me the manuscripts and I'll get them published. So he was able to do that for the first few years, and um, 
he was close to the group and things were getting published in Japan and other people in Japan were interested in what had happened to them. Okay. Um, in 1992, Kim Il-sung had yet another uh, press conference with Japanese press. And at those preference press conferences, the Japanese journalists always asked, what is, what's happening with the Yodogo group? And on that one, Kim Il-sung was feeling expansive and he said, oh, you know, you guys... Japan ought to lay off those guys. They've been here so long. They actually, they're changed. They're grown up. They have wives and children now, and you should let them go back home. So the journalist reported that, not realizing what he had said. And so after a few days, people realized, he says they have wives and children. Who are these wives and children? And it turned out that, yes, they had, they had Japanese wives and they had children and were living luxuriously in a compound in North Korea. Okay. In 1993, when Takazawa went to North Korea, he was invited to meet with and interview the wives. He did that, and he produced a book based on their, the stories that they told him. And he came back to Japan and he had it published. When he gave me a copy when it came out, he said, here's, here's the story that the wives have told me. He said, don't use this in your research because it's all lies. But, <laughs> you know, but it's what they said. So they said they had met their husbands while traveling in Europe, had fallen in love, and then had gone to North Korea with them. Um, and he didn't believe their romantic tales. Okay, so then he, this is him meeting with Tamiya in Pyongyang because he was going back and forth. And then in 1995, Tamiya died quite suddenly. And uh, by then, Takazawa had had a lot of questions about what they were doing and what they had said they were doing. And so with Tamiya dead, he said, okay, now I've got to get to the bottom of this. So he began to investigate on his own based on leads conversations he'd had with Tamiya and also conversations he'd had with a woman who had left the group or had been stranded in Japan and was outed and couldn't go back. And so he, he was beginning to understand uh, some things about what was really happening there. Okay, so he first went to Spain and he looked for traces of the group and he also had gathered that they had lured some people to North Korea and to join their group. And uh, that seemed to match up with, they had been looking in Europe for young backpackers, young students who were in Europe and who could become members of their organization. So in Madrid, he went to a place that had been described to him as um, a pension, where some of them had stayed. This one, uh, this was one of them, the San Pedro, and then there was another one called the Amadeo. And at the Amadeo, he, neither one of them was still operating in the 90s when he went there. But at the Amadeo, there was a woman who had handled all these Japanese who had come in previous years. She loved Japan, and she had her registers. So she showed him the registers, and he found in the 1990. A 1980 register, um, an entry for a Kuroda Sakiko and Mori Yoriko. Those are two of the Yorogo wives. Okay, so he'd now placed the wives there. There was other evidence from a couple of backpackers who had stayed there and had sent information home about staying there. So the pieces were beginning to come together. 
Um, the, so these two wives had been there and had met um, a young Japanese guy called Ishioka Toru and another one called Matsuki Kaoru. Then in 1990, a picture surfaced. It had been taken by the traveling companion who had gone to Europe with, um, this is this is Ishioka Toru, and his friend from Japan had gone there with him, and then they had parted ways, and he was supposed to meet up with him, and he never showed up. So he didn't know what had happened. He went on back home. But he had taken a picture in the Barcelona Zoo, and that picture had the same two women in it, Moriyoriko and Kuroda Sakiko. Okay? So that puts them in direct contact with uh, one of the guys who was missing. Okay, so that's what happened. That's that surfaced in 1990 and had them linked. Okay, then he was looking for some more people in Spain, but he couldn't find them, and he went off again to England, where there was a young woman student who had also disappeared and ended up in North Korea. And this is so he tracked down her tracks. This is her, um, Arimoto Keiko, and she was uh, an exchange student for, he was going to a Japanese language, or an English language school in um, London, and after a year there, uh, she was supposed to go home. She had sent her parents where she was going to, how she was going to get home, and then the night before she was to arrive, they got a telegram from Athens saying, found work, I'm going to be delayed. And that was the last word they had from her. Okay, so he began tracking it down. He traced her there, and through other evidence, um, he traced her to Copenhagen, where she thought she was going to find work, but it was a ruse to get her to North Korea. And this picture um, was provided by the Danish police, who sent the information to the Japanese police, and this is uh, Arimoto Keiko, and this is the, the horrible picture. This isn't a skeleton. It's actually a North Korean. It was their, their handler, and they were going back to North Korea, okay? And this was on a flight to Moscow. This was taken in the airport. Um, the airline ticket, the, the, excuse me, the telegram came later, and it was sent by somebody else, and he determined from what it says up here that it was actually sent. This is the departure lounge of the Athens airport after you go through and you're on your way out of the. This is, um, a, there's a telegraph office there, and that's where it had been sent. And by the time this was sent, she was already in North Korea. Okay, but nobody knew. Okay, what did show up, and which was part of why he knew what he was looking for, is that Ishioka had sent a letter to his family in Hokkaido. And he couldn't send a letter out, but he was able to have it smuggled out by somebody who from Poland who then sent it to Japan from Poland to his family. And so they get this letter out of the blue saying he's living in North Korea with two other people and that they're doing okay, but things are kind of hard. And so he's, this is his picture. That's the same guy that was in the Barcelona Zoo. And this is Arimoto Keiko. 
at the time, people thought the third picture, which came out in the newspapers as all black, was a picture of the third guy, Matsuki Kaoru. But when Takazawa saw the picture in the real picture in Hokkaido, it was a picture of a baby. And they no longer had contact with Matsuki, but the two of them had married and had a child. So they're in North Korea, and they're stuck there. Okay. Um, all of this was part of the research he used to write what became a prize-winning book, won a prize for nonfiction the year after it was published. And in that book, he tells how the Yodogo hijackers converted to Juche, what the group's elite, luxurious lifestyle in North Korea has been like, how wives were brought to North Korea to marry them, how they were then trained as North Korean agents, how they lured Japanese from Europe to North Korea, and what happened to the people they took there, and what happened to the missing Yodogo members. All of this is in, it's beautifully told in his story, and it's intertwined with Takazawa's reflections on his own experiences. Like many people who went through that period in Japan, they were very close to people who did things from which you could not come back. And so there are an awful lot of people in Japan who say, phew, I came that close, but I didn't go there, and I'm really grateful. So he's reflecting on how he had changed over the years. So that's part of the story as well. Now, how did my destiny get intertwined with these people? I was doing research on the Red Army and the New Left from 1972 on, and I was doing fieldwork in Japan intermittently from 1982. I met Takazawa in 1982. As I was asking around, several people told me, oh, this is the guy you've got to talk to. Um, and we became friends. And then a few years later, he knew that I was writing up what I had found so far. And he said, well, you know, if you give me the manuscript, we can get it published in Japan. So I gave him the manuscript, and lo and behold, a couple years later, um, I was back in Japan, and the publisher um, assigned a, an in-house translator who was very good to it, and I was there for a year, so I worked with her through that year, going through chapter by chapter, and the book came out first as Nihon Sekigun Ha, which doesn't exist. Um, there's Nihon Sekigun and there's Sekigun Ha, but they're not put together. Anyway, so they wanted a name that wasn't real. Okay, so this book came out, and it, that's the name they gave it, but they also called it Deadly Ideology, because that was the title that I had intended to write for the English version. Okay, so it came out, and it did pretty well in Japan, and then after it went out of print in the mid-1990s, um, Iwanami Shinsho picked it up, and it was in print until fairly recently. I think it's completely out of print now, um, and so it's getting expensive if you go to used bookstores and find it. At any rate, he was responsible for that getting published. Um, about during that time, um, Ted Bester and I published a book um, called Doing Fieldwork in Japan that had accounts from different um, scholars about how they went about doing their fieldwork. And I had a piece about doing the fieldwork for this and doing prison interviews and stuff and um, using QN and Akusenta as a base. Um, and when that book came out in Japan, uh, Takazawa and all the research people uh, gave me an author's party so that we had decided to put 
um, to put our favorite informants on the cover. And so this was Ted's informant, and he was mine. Okay, So that was that kind of connection that hooked me up with these people. Um, then in 1994, Takazawa donated all of his archives to the University of Hawaii. And I became responsible for the cataloging of the collection. Japanese grad students at the University of Hawaii did the actual cataloging, and a couple of them are here. Um, and he and I worked together on the annotations, and he added it to, uh, added to it periodically, and he visited um, Hawaii. Also during the 1990s, I had two different Fulbrights to Japan, plus short trips. I followed the Shibata trial when it was happening in the early years, and, he, and I met often with Takazawa during a period when he was traveling to the north quite a bit. I didn't know he was writing this book, but I, I was hearing about it as we went along. And this is the website for the Takazawa collection at the University of Hawaii. And when he published this book in Japanese in 1998, this is the back cover of it in which he points out that he did give his collection to the University of Hawaii. Okay, now, how did the translation come about? Well, after the book came out, I had a number of students who were working in the Takazawa collection doing the hard work of actually <laughs> entering the data and doing it in both Japanese and English. And we all read the book. So I read it, and then, oh, they all read it, and it went around. And so then they said, we should translate this, okay? They thought there was an English-language audience for it. So the students divided up the chapters, and they did initial rough translations. Shortly after that, Takazawa had a very serious hemorrhagic stroke, and he was out of commission for several years. So this project sort of was dormant for a while. The translations, the rough translations had been done, and... At that point, um, Ryoko Yamamoto was one of the translators. She's there. And Chris Bondi's now wife, was another one of the translators. And Chris and I thought we would clean it up after they had finished doing the basic translation. Well, then when we looked at it, we realized neither one of us was a translator. <laughs> we couldn't do that. So I got a little money and hired a, another graduate student at UH who was actually a professional translator. And she and I worked with the manuscript, and she did a wonderful job of polishing it into, pretty, into nice, dramatic English. Okay, but then when it came time to actually um, finalize it, um, I had to go through again, and the, the, um, I added an editor's introduction to explain the context and translator's notes throughout it to make it understandable to an American audience. And he added an afterword about getting the Kodansha Prize the year after the book was published. And he also asked me to write a follow-up chapter. So for several years, every time I went to Japan, I was hearing from him and also following from other sources, including what, what Yamanaka-san was doing at, at QN Center to see what was happening, because he was bringing the wives and children back, and that was a very complicated process that took many years. At any rate, I finally wrote a follow-up chapter up to the point that the, that the translation was published. Okay, and in that process, I also did a lot of tweaking of the translation. I claim no credit as a translator. Other people translated, but there were details about the new left jargon and the nuances that I could put in that, that they hadn't necessarily known, so I had a hand in it. Okay, 
Um, so what's the significance of destiny for an English reading audience? First of all, the book revealed the evidence of North Korean kidnappings of Japanese, which was later confirmed. In 2002, um, the then Prime Minister of Japan demanded that Kim Il-sung own up to people who had been kidnapped by North Korea. And they produced a list of 13 people. There were many more, but that was the initial list. And on that initial list were Ishio Katoru, <laughs> Matsuki Kaoru, and Arimoto Keiko. So the North Korean government acknowledged that those three people had been kidnapped as Japanese citizens and taken to Japan and had not. And, of course, by then he said, oh, they're all dead, one reason or another. But um, So the government acknowledged it. However, to this date, the Yodogo group, the people who are still in North Korea, their position is we didn't bring anybody here against their will. They came willingly, and we don't know what happened after they got here and things went south. So they, the government recognizes these are people who were kidnapped victims. They were part of the Rachimondai. And this was the first book that brought real evidence for part of it. And so after that, Rachimondai became a big thing, and it still is in Japan. And right, right to this very day, Japan's demand of North Korea in these talks that are about to happen between Trump and uh, <laughs> Kim Jong-un, if they ever happen, the Japanese demand is more information about the people who were kidnapped. So that's their highest priority, okay? But there are still four of the, the hijackers, plus two wives and one minor child, who may not be a minor anymore, um, still living in this compound in outside of Pyongyang. Um, so that part is important and has, is historically important. Um, but it also offers a very different angle on North Korea because these people were being tr handled as an elite group, handled right from the top. Kim Jong-un was, um, excuse me, Kim Jong-il, uh, his father, was in charge of them directly. So he was the one who was handling all of their activities and supervising them. So they were treated, crazy as it may seem, they were treated as the elite Japanese group that was going to lead a North Korean-style revolution in Japan. So they were building a party, they needed more members, and that was... So the two fantasies, the North Korean fantasy and the Yodogo fantasy, came together and they enabled each other, and this is what happened. Um, at another level, it's a case study, case study of the thought reform process. Um, and I actually took out those two chapters and edited them down and um, produced them as a, as a separate publication in Japan Focus, which is an online magazine. I hope you will all read the whole book. But if you don't want to read the whole book, you can at least read the part about <laughs> how they got converted in Japan Focus. It's open access. Okay. And the other significance of it, of doing the translation, is this is a very powerfully written nonfiction book that reads like a novel. Everybody who reads it says it's a page turner, okay? And you can read it more than once, and it's still fascinating, okay? So that's the end of what I have to say. Um, 
Last summer, I brought him an advanced copy of it. This is what he looks like now. His health is not good. He's in a, uh, a nursing home, and these are two people who were helping him. This one is no longer with us, but at any rate, he was very happy to get the translation last summer. Okay, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Well, thank you, Pat. Um, I, I have to say at the beginning uh, that uh, I am not a, a Korea specialist, and I'm certainly not an expert on North Korea. Um, I, have ho- I have, however, paid more than a little casual attention to the Hermit Kingdom, our neighbor with the weird habits. I am a closet North Korea watcher. Um, and I, I would ask, how can you resist the temptation uh, the great leader, the dear leader, the great successor. I mean, the whole thing lends itself to parody. In fact, uh, I have a couple of beer-making friends who are known as the great brewer and the dear brewer, respectively. Um, my first experience with North Korea occurred in 1982 when I was living in Fukui Prefecture. And uh, shortly after moving there, we were told by uh, public officials that we should not go to the beach at night. Uh, because people had been disappearing. We didn't really understand exactly what was happening, but we went to the beach anyway in the middle of the night, being young and foolhardy. Uh, Later, I had a a friend from that period who became a journalist with Reuters, and he visited Pyongyang in the mid-1990s, and from there he sent us an email, which he said had cost many dollars, and the message memorably noted that, quote, they have the guns butter equation way out of whack here. Uh, These sorts of glancing contacts uh, brought the grim reality of the North's brutal authoritarianism close to me. Uh, I also have done some reading over the years. I've followed the stories of escapees and refugees from North Korea, their epic journeys uh, across rivers through China into Burma and other countries, and finally into India or Thailand before being able to fly to South Korea where they receive asylum. And recently, uh, I saw a marvelous film made by a Russian filmmaker who managed to uh, get a a lot of between-the-scenes footage uh, out of North Korea, in which we can see North Korean minders telling the North Korean subjects how to act and reshooting the same scene over and over again until the desired level of a door is reached. Well, it's sort of like the translator in the whiskey commercial in the comedy Lost in Translation who keeps calling for more intensity. Uh, the stories of those who make it to South Korea, refugees from the North, perhaps most graphically uh, illustrate the damage that living in the North can do to people. Uh, they often find it very hard to adapt to life in the South. The normative behavior of the North is a poor fit for living elsewhere country is, uh, as Takazawa says at the end of the book, uh, a humanitarian disaster. It's a failure whose levers uh, are the threats that its nuclear weapons pose to its neighbors. Um, The narcissism of the regime, its mercurial temper, the way that it lashes out, imprisoning many, murdering its own citizens at home or abroad, kidnapping those of other countries, and the zany tone of its news broadcasts All of these aspects of North Korea are now familiar to us. Um, But in spite of these contacts with North Korea over the years and this knowledge, um, I I admit that this is minimal background. 
but none of this actually prepared me for the revelations to be found in this book. So I'm here as an interested reader rather than an expert. And I first want to recommend this text to you as a page-turning, intrigue-filled book with cliffhangers, unanswered questions, shadowy figures, missing members, and deaths. Suspicion is the key word. Um, And indeed, uh, as Dr. Steinhoff said, uh, it's worth reading more than once. In fact, it's a little bit like the movie Fight Club, uh, in which you, you really actually have to see it twice, Uh, to be able to understand what's actually going on in the story. Um, Pat's presentation makes it seem rather linear, but when you, and and, and my hat's off to you, because having read it twice, I still could not have done that. Um, It's uh, it's an amazing achievement, and Takazawa has, he certainly is deserving of the prize that he won for the book. As you read, um, you begin to lose trust um, story after story it turns out to be full of holes and, and hidden facets. Um, in terms of style, the book uh, would seem to me, having, I have not read the original, but um, uh, it seems to me true to the original. There are a lot of turns of phrase that one could recognize as direct rendering from the Japanese. And the tone uh, is... Uh, Uh, rather balanced uh, and even. I want to read one short passage that gives the flavor of uh, Takazawa's writing. Uh, He's on an airplane uh, headed for Pyongyang uh, for the first time, flying from Beijing. He says, the aircraft flew across the Bohai Sea, leaving behind the Chinese mainland, then continued over the Liaodong Peninsula. Eventually, a jumbled reddish-brown massif came into view the Korean Peninsula. The place, in places, the russet-colored mountains were covered with patches of ice and snow. Gradually, the world below grew completely white. The fiery colors of the setting sun glowed briefly through the windows, and then suddenly darkness descended. We had arrived in Pyongyang. And throughout the book, he sets scenes uh, with... Uh, extraordinarily well-crafted vignettes to give you uh, a feeling beyond a simple description of the facts uh, that he discovers in his investigation. Um, He evokes the feeling of the period, uh, the specialized little coffee shops, whether they be jazz or classical music, small insignificant details such as the smell of uh, Miss Fukui's perfume in the opening chapter. Uh, These vignettes give the book the feel of a novel, perhaps uh, by somebody like Abe Kobo. And as I read this, the, the, the book by Kobo, that, by Abe, that kept floating up into my memory was The Ruined Map, which is the story of a detective who is looking for someone, and in the, in the course of, of his search, he loses himself. There's a chase, uh, unearthing the past, a cold trail that unfolds, revealing multiple dimensions. The onion is peeled away layer by layer, um, we are reminded of the period of struggle that Dr. Steinhoff just described for us, so different from today when students challenged authority and when clashes between students and administration and between student groups, too, were often violent. The police and their tactics are clear. There's guilt by association, the misuse of power, arresting people on trumped-up or false charges. The students and their, undes- and their under- understandable idealism in the face of official cynicism Uh, We see this in the last will and testament of the hijackers, 
who are desperate to seize a revolutionary moment, even at the cost of their own lives, in defiance of a state that will not tolerate dissent. How ironic it is, then, that they should end up in an even less tolerant state. It soon becomes clear that the students are quite naive and overmatched. Uh, Forced to land at Gimpo Airport in Seoul, they're told they're in North Korea, as we've heard. Uh, They cleverly demand a portrait of Kim Il-sung as proof that they're in North Korea. Um, This is a brief moment of success, because that's the one thing you could not find in South Korea at any price. They're also lucky to avoid being shot down over the DMZ. Um, It seems that they actually crossed over the DMZ and then were turned around and brought back to Seoul to land. Why did that happen? Uh, A lot of questions uh, emerge from this about the degree of uh, collaboration between the U.S., the South Koreans, the Japanese, and what the North Koreans may have known about uh, about the ongoing hijack. The hijackers had not made advanced contact, and this is another example of their naivete. Moreover, uh, they have a romantic idea of themselves as soldiers planning an armed revolution. It's almost impossible today to believe that such a Japan existed. That world is nearly all but gone now. Um, They didn't even know about Juche before their arrival in North Korea, but as Pat said, um, it was just emerging as the state religion at that point. The lack of planning and basic sense of the world is seen in their slogans. Uh, These were uh, posted on the wall of their residence uh, outside Pyongyang in the village where they lived. They said, we will live and die together. We will defend and nurture the simultaneous world revolutionary transition. To complete the success of the hijacking, let us prepare for a triumphant return to Japan. They wanted military training, but instead they got re-education, the repetition of the same lectures over and over again. Uh, Gradually, their image as revolutionaries is shattered, and they must find an alternative identity. In North Korea, only one option is permitted, and that is belief in juche, uh, dependence on the party. They are, uh, from my point of view, in the grip of a kind of Stockholm syndrome, They're provided with everything that they need to live and more. Uh, They're a little bit like the patients described in Irving Goffman's book, Asylums, who have their old selves removed through a process of mortification. And then they're tasked with filling the void. Uh, To do so, they develop the notion of revolutionary giddy. In other words, gratitude toward Kim Il-sung, who has welcomed them uh, to North Korea. They learn to see their acceptance of Juche philosophy as proof of their progress in learning the truth. Their education is a self-criticism boot camp that lasts not only for the first two years of their uh, time in North Korea, but it's ongoing. Um, Periods of confusion lead to deeper reliance on Juche. Some of the members did not succumb. to the training. Uh, When uh, a book was published called 20 Years After Takeoff, uh, a book of memoirs of the group uh, that was published under Takazawa's editorship in 1990, segments by two of the members were not included. Why? Uh, And why does the book only deal with the memories of the first year after the hijacking? Takazawa baits the hook with a lot of uh, tasty mysteries such as this. The book is a really challenging read. Um, As I said, after reading it twice, I would still be hard-pressed to give you a a short summary outline of the plot. 
After a couple of years, uh, the transformation of the students into Kim's golden eggs is complete, and the press conference with Japanese journalists revealed the hijackers to be fully converted. At a subsequent meeting with Kim Il-sung, which uh, they never publicly acknowledged, Tamiya was anointed as the leader of the revolution in Japan and given a gold watch by Kim Il-sung. This struck me as A, not very proletarian, and B, very similar to the charismatic leadership style of people like Ikeda Daisaku and perhaps the shakubuku tactics of the Soka Gakkai. The repetitive lectures, the insistence that only one doctrine is permissible, the use of gifts and favors to cement relations to the leader, the dream of a world unified under a single ideology or belief, all of these aspects are quite similar. Moreover, the songs of praise that the Japanese composed for Kim Il-sung sound like the company anthems of Japanese firms, full of soaring images of victory, unity, peace, and happiness. We can see perhaps why the rhetoric of re-education resonated with the hijackers. The notion of destiny, uh, of course it's in the title, is first mentioned uh, in Fukui Takako's story of feeling connected to her boyfriend, Konishi, uh, by a red thread of destiny. Konishi had written to her, We are all masters of our own destinies. We each have within ourselves the power to pioneer our own destinies. His remarks to her, uh, he remarks to her that they'll meet again in a year. This is a letter that he gave her before he went to North Korea. How could Konishi have known? Uh, This part remains unresolved for me. Uh, Was Konishi escaping into political asylum? If that's true, then his goal was considerably different than that of his companions. The story takes another major turn when in 1992 Kim Il-sung reveals that the hijackers are married to Japanese women who Takazawa interviews and he presents this information in chapter 10. What do we learn? We learn, quote, the true story is always hidden behind the fictional one. The dialogues with the wives, it turns out, have all been carefully scripted and rehearsed. They tell the correct story rather than the real story. We now know that the real story is that the marriages were arranged by the Kims, especially Kim Jong-il. Takazawa wants the stories to be true. He wants to protect his friend Tamiya from loss of face. But these wives' tales are the work of the workers' party. The Yodogo hijackers live in extreme material comfort, far beyond that of most North Koreans. They have servants and drivers and a fleet of Mercedes-Benzes. There's a story of uh, one of the servants stealing an orange peel from the garbage, and she's chastised for this, and she apologetically uh, says that she has a sick child at home and she wants to use the orange peel to make medicine. She promises that she'll never do anything like that again. We get a sense of the distance between the the Japanese and uh, the North Koreans. Nevertheless, their daily routine echoes descriptions of the ethics camps described by Thomas Rolin or Doreen Kondo in their books on work in Japan. The Japanese have brought some of the habits of their early training with them, rising early, exercising, running, and so forth, and, uh, of course, intense study of the the Juche philosophy and the works of Kim Kim Il-sung. These habits sustain them while the process of developing proper revolutionary identity continues. They eventually come to see themselves as, quote, serving the people, when in fact they are puppets of the Kims. The wives and subsequently children 
uh, of the hijacker with wives, excuse me, with wives and subsequently children, the hijackers become much more useful to the North Korean regime. They can be sent abroad to carry out operations while their families remain behind as de facto hostages. It's at this point that they're finally given the military training that they have so long sought, and they're also taught spycraft. They learn that peace equals loyalty to the regime and that happiness equals successful operations. Tasked with recruiting more Japanese for the Independent Revolution Party with Tamiya as leader, they set up operations in Europe to recruit more Japanese to the cause. One flaw in the North Korean strategy, um, and this involves um, uh, people in the North Korean embassies across Europe uh, selling black market cigarettes at half the black market price. Um, th this gets the attention of the authorities, I believe it's in Denmark. They can't understand, you know, how, these are not counterfeit cigarettes. They're bonded and so forth. How can anybody be selling, you know, real goods on the black market for half the black market price? Nobody, you know, you can't, go, you can't do business that way. Well, the surveillance um, that the, the authorities set up soon reveals that there's more to the story than liquor and drugs. People are being abducted. Uh, Arimoto Keiko is kidnapped from Copenhagen. Two men are spirited away from Madrid. Takazawa is able to trace the movements of the operatives by finding their names in the registers of the cheap hotels they used where they registered with their Japanese passports. And you really have to marvel at his persistence in tracking down the details that he used to build this account. It's Tamiya's sudden death in 1995 that inspires Takazawa to trace the steps of the group in Europe. He finds that the wives are doing much of the work, luring Japanese tourists into traps baited with promises of travel or jobs. Confirmation came in 1998 when Ishioka Toru, abducted from Madrid, managed to get the letter that you saw out of North Korea to his parents in Japan. The letter also mentions other people who disappeared, including Arimoto Keiko. One wonders what it may have eventually cost him to get this letter out uh, through a foreigner who was apparently from Poland. This was news to the Japanese authorities. In Japan, kidnappings by North Korean agents are only recognized in 1997 with the case of Yokota Megumi. It turns out that there were many Japanese in North Korea and that the Yodo group know of them but do not meet them. Tamiya, leader of the hijackers, asks Takazawa to meet with the families of these victims and urge them to be patient. He seems to think that their release is imminent, but we now know that that was not the case. All right. Well, um, the timing of this book, if not that phone call, <laughs> the timing of this book could not be better. It leads right to the present-day situation with Kim and Trump. Who, if either of them, can or should we trust? Takazawa's story suggests that the North Koreans seldom, if ever, tell the truth, and even if they do, it's only to advance further deceptions. I think we need to take the advice of Ezra Vogel here and ask not, did they tell the truth, but rather, what truth did they tell? As Takazawa discovers the highly polished lies of the hijackers' Japanese wives, their explanations of how they came to be in North Korea, Tamiya's 1980 essay in Shisa, entitled Ten Years Since Leaving the Homeland, a message from Pyongyang, 
These and others are examples of Kim Il-sung's art of guidance, the sophisticated use of propaganda and buzzwords in the service of hidden ends. But despite the infinite care used to craft these strategies, eventually the cover stories fail. To maintain a coherent lie over decades and among different people is very hard. Eventually it begins to break down. Flaws in the logic start to show through. Takazawa's painstaking investigation picks apart these flaws to reveal how the Yodogo hijackers became Juche warriors, faithful and unconditional believers in self-reliance and autonomy as those terms are defined in North Korea. Takazawa notes how this resembles the cult of the emperor in pre-war Japan with official portraits of the leader in all households. As I said earlier, it also bears more than a passing resemblance to the doctrines of Japanese religious cults. Beautiful fascism, Takazawa calls it. Some people in the group uh, are angry at Takazawa for telling the truth rather than protecting the group. Um, this is a little bit like the case of Michael Woodford uh, recently, uh, the person who was chairman of Olympus uh, until he blew the whistle on his own company. Um, lies and fabrications are used to discredit Takazawa himself by the North Koreans, and even Dr. Steinhoff is smeared with the charge that she is an agent of the Cargill Corporation, which she had never heard of until that point. Um, so these are some of my comments uh, on, on the book. Um, and I think what we ought to do now, perhaps, is bring Pat up uh, entertain questions from the floor uh, and see uh, what else we can learn uh, about this fascinating volume, which I highly recommend to all of you. I really, I really think this is one of the most exciting uh, things that I've read in, in the last 20 years or so. So thank you for listening. <laughs>